Okay, last fall, uh, we began a series on the book of Acts. If y'all remember, it was some time ago. Had a little holiday break, talked about other things. But in, the, in this, this uh, uh, series on Acts, we had just put together the vision of the church, really discerned it from the Lord, and, and we sought to really examine the life of the first church because here is a group of people um, as the first church is launched right after Pentecost, here's a group of people, they are on fire. They have a mission. They've come together to do incredible things. And so, as, as, as we begin to really walk in the unified vision, we went, you know what? We need to start right here. And, and we went here knowing that we cannot replicate everything we read in the book of Acts. Um, there are some things in which cultures and times will not translate. So, so we know we can't replicate everything in the book of Acts, but there is still so much that we can glean from these people. There's so much that we can learn from our first century Christian family. And so I want you to, to I just invite you to, to join me back in Acts chapter 4. This is the last thing we dealt with. I'll read this, make a few comments, and then we will go into something completely different. So here we go, Acts 4. 32 through 37. This is our, our recap and getting drawn back in. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons present among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the, the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. For example, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, he sold his field and brought the, the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. The picture we get in Acts chapter 4 is a church that is united, strongly united, and the, 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 the feeling, the environment, the atmosphere, the culture here, there's only one word I can think of to describe it, and it's, it's we have a spiritual utopia. This is a utopia. Now, a utopia means a paradise, and, and looking back throughout Scripture, um, we haven't seen this kind of connection between men and women as a whole and God, and this kind of buy-in on the part of God's people since the Garden of Eden. I mean, this, this really is like a return to the Garden of Eden. It's just, it's just so utopic. It's so ideal. Salvation has just been accomplished by Jesus Christ. Um, the Spirit of God has just been poured out. The church has just been birthed. You've got this new spiritual family, and you just read it with me on the page. There, there's no division here. There's no disruption. Dysfunction is, is maybe this big. And all of this is what happens when you reach true unity. What does unity look like? Well, I tell you, here's a pretty good example of it. Now, we're also introduced, and I think proof of their unity, there's something else that comes into this that's remarkable. We are introduced to, okay, and, and don't worry, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to mess with you financially here, but we are introduced to radical generosity on the part of God's people. I mean, these, we, we are talking about sacrificial giving that is a mind blower coming from the church. Everything they have is a shared possession. 
I mean, I, I don't know what, what, what the vision statement was of the first church. I can pretty much guess what it was. But somewhere, I mean, you just feel like one of their taglines were, were, what's mine is yours and what's, what's yours is mine. I mean, it's an incredible thing to see. I mean, I, I have never encountered this to a church to this degree, but they've got it. And it's not just toward one another, but it's toward the needy among them. And even among them suggests that there's giving going on outside of the church to the world. There's nobody needy because of the giving of this church. And so what you see is this unity here and this generosity. It comes together, and it is like a lightning rod for the Spirit of God. The power of God is being poured out. Salvation is happening. It's like God looks at these people and goes, you know what? I need somebody I can use. Oh, my goodness, I can use these people. It is a lightning rod for the power and, and, and the Spirit of God to be just poured out. You know, last week we talked about pure worship. Y'all remember that because everybody was here, right? We talked about pure worship. Well, this week what we're looking at is pure compassion. And the reason I call it pure compassion is because this is not coerced. These people are not being compelled. Like, in other words, Peter's not standing up and going, you know what, if you guys are worth your spiritual salt as Christians, you're going to give everything you have. Or, you know, any Christian who really believes in God, well, I'll tell you, you're going to give your 10, your 20. Your th-. There's none of that going on. All of this, this unity, this love, and this giving, it's just all coming from the heart. You talk about an ideal church, utopia, I mean, this is it. But here's the thing. This is also a perfect time for the devil to strike. It is a perfect time. Why? Because everyone's defenses are down, money is up, and love is just flowing like a river. This is a perfect time. By the way, the church also has a mission, right? The church is on fire for God, so everything is ripe for God to do incredible things, but if the devil is ever going to attack, this is the time. And so he does. The devil launches an attack. But see, the problem here is he doesn't come at the church straight on. Now, why doesn't he come at the church straight on, in the door, just charge at him? Well, the reason he doesn't is because he just tried that. If you remember, if you think back to the series, he's already tried that, and it just failed. You remember the persecution that he launched against Peter and John? You remember? They're arrested. They're thrown in jail. They're put on trial. Well, What happens when the devil does that? Well, God shows up in a bigger way. God shows up, and he protects the apostles. He gives them the words to say, and before you know it, these guys are back out on the street, free as can be. The movement's grown even more, so that one failed. So the devil is going to attack. This time he's going to have to do something different, and he does. He comes at the church in a completely different form. Listen to this, Acts 5, 1 through 11. Now, a man named Ananias, together uh, uh, with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With her full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've lied uh, not just to human beings, but also to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what happened. 
Then some young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, here is a story to make your blood run cold. If there's ever one in Scripture that you read it and you go, oh my goodness, this is the one. And, and it starts out very, very interestingly with a married couple who decides to fudge a little bit on a, a charitable act. Now, obviously, what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira is they have seen that there are those who have given radically in the church, and it's kind of caught everybody's attention. You know, the people admire these radical givers, these sacrificial people. You know, the people are talking about them. It's kind of like maybe they've risen to the top of the spiritual food chain, and uh, they want in on the action. But instead of getting it the right way by falling in love with God, living a life of worship, serving one another, joining in with what the church is doing and growing into something beautiful, these two go, well, forget it. And they just take the car off-road, and they try and take a shortcut. It, it goes something like this. One day, Ananias, uh, Ananias looks at Sapphira and just says, hey, babe, you want to turn a few heads with me? You know, let's, let's, let's get in on this. Why don't we sell our vacant lot? and we'll give the money to the church. Now, we, we, we'll say it's every penny, but, you know, we'll keep a little something back for ourselves, and, you know, we'll end up looking like saints. Nobody will be the wiser, and we're still helping the cause. I mean, where's the crime in all that? And then, boom, God strikes them dead. Now, we, we, we read that, and the question that so many of us have is, okay, I, I, I see a problem here, definitely, but God does the punishment really fit the crime here? I mean, I, I read this, and, and, and it's like firing somebody for using the wrong color post-it note. You know, it's so severe. God, I, I thought you were a God of love and mercy and compassion, but here in Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11, you're like the, you're like the queen from Alice in Wonderland, you know, off with their heads. So, so we, we read that and we feel like that, and, and, and we kind of say, you know, what is the big deal? It's, it's only a sin. But here's the thing. It's not a sin. What Ananias and Sapphira did is not a sin. It is a whole bunch of sins. What, what, I'll point out a few of them here. Um, the, the, the first one that we run into, the one that's most clear, is deceit. I might say, well, you know, deceit's involved in a lot of sins. Again, not that big a deal. Think about this. In the Garden of Eden, in the last paradise that God has created, what opened the door to all the sin we read about? I mean, a few chapters later, where are we at? Noah, chapter 6. The earth has to be cleansed. What opens the door to Eve and Adam eating that apple, to rejecting God, for going the other way? It's deceit, isn't it? 
deceit slithers in through the serpent, and suddenly the conversation changes. Well, you know, uh, God said, even if you touch it, you, I mean, uh, deceit gets all in the mix. Next thing you know, it opens the door. That's what deceit does. It is a doorman for sin. That's exactly what happens right here. Deceit slithers into the early church and opens the door for other sins, like the second one that we see here that's just as clear as can be, which is misrepresentation of Ananias and Sapphira of their true motivation. They are not about sacrificial giving. They are not about the needs of the poor. They are not about the kingdom of God. In this moment, Ananias and Sapphira are about Ananias and Sapphira. And you have these two sins coming together to create one whopper of a brazen public lie. And Peter even points it out in 3 and 4, and he goes, you you two guys, you are lying to the people of God, and you're lying to the Spirit of God, to God Himself. And then there's the word, there's the Greek word for the phrase, keeping back some of the money for themselves. Now, this is interesting, okay? This is where Greek can really help. The word, if you want to know it, is nosphizomai, and it means misappropriation of funds. Now, listen to this. You know what that tells you? Ananias and Sapphira actually made a contract with the church. They made a public vow. They made a pledge. We want to do this. We feel led by God to do this. So they actually pledged all of this to the church, and then they had this public show of laying all the money down at the apostles' feet. And again, remember, they're not pressured into into doing this. This is is their own heart supposedly. And Peter even points it out in verse 4. What are you thinking here? Guys, what are you doing? The land was yours to begin with. The money was yours to give away. Or to keep. You could have done what you wanted to. And all of these sins, with many others, I could go on, flow into a miserable little cesspool of hypocrisy. And we all know what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is putting on a spiritual show. Ananias and Sapphira are doing their best to look like spiritual giants in front of the whole church. They're trying to fool everyone into believing that here we are, we are the poster, chi- we're the poster children, God's couple of the year. Go ahead and put our faces up everywhere. We-, we are it. And when I say everyone, remember, they're also doing this in front of God, right? I mean, that's where the hypocrisy really comes in. God knows what's going on behind the scenes. He knows their hearts, their motivations. I mean, and here they are in front of God going, you know what, God, uh, apparently you didn't see what happened back then. Here is everything, Lord. It's just hypocrisy at the highest level. God knows the secret plans. John Stott says about this passage, he says, you know, if there is ever a case in the New Testament of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this is it. And, and, of course, John Stott is referencing uh, Jesus in Luke 12, 10, where Jesus tells us that, you know, God, all, all manner of sin will be forgiven except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. And this is what these two are, two are up to. It's in the face of known truth, in the presence of God, just trying to pass something else off. It sums it up. And that's why Peter says to them in verse 3, Satan has truly filled your heart. We got a lot of mess going on here with these two. You talk about a cancer in the church. You talk about a major problem. This is the beginning of something very bad. But despite all of that, okay, despite the fact that these two are caught with their hands in the cookie jar, you know, they're caught red-handed. I mean, and, and by the way, remember, they are caught by the Lord here. 
Because who's the one who's calling them to account? Who's challenging them? It's Peter. How in the world can Peter know this except by the Spirit of God? They are being called out by the Holy Spirit here. But you got to realize through all of Peter's words to them, he is calling them to repentance. You know, it's not like God just goes, oh, here they go, boom, they're out of here. It's not that way at all. They're being called to repentance. Peter is calling them to confession. Come clean, confess what you've done. Let's get free of this all over again. And this is one of those places in Scripture where their silence is as loud as a bullhorn. Their silence is just an absolute refusal to come clean. And so what does God do here? God cleanses His church because these two won't come clean. There's not going to be another Garden of Eden moment at the very begin all over again. God won't tolerate it. And so we, we, we see this, and we read this, and we come at the end of it and go, man, that, this story is really awesome, and it's really scary. And if you feel that way right now, it's okay because so did everybody in the passage. Peter pointed out twice. Everybody's just blown away by the power and the holiness and even the wrath of God here. So that's Acts 5, 1 through 11. Now, here's the question for us. What in the world do we do with this story? Well, don't fear. I'm not going to point out one side of the church. You know, this isn't a secret hunt for sinners in the church. There's nothing like this. What we are getting in Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11, is a secret ingredient in the life of the church. If you think of the church, okay, pretend it's a cake, right? There are all these ingredients that we already know about in the life of the church. This is actually another key ingredient, but it's an ingredient that goes off as a secret because so often it gets neglected in the church or we look the other way that we miss it. Now, let me talk about a couple of the, a couple of the ingredients we know of so far. First of all, here is an ingredient in the church. We know that what we do is to revolve around the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not Steve Keller's church because he's the pastor. This is Jesus Christ's church, right? It's not the elders' church. It's not the people who are here the longest church. This is his church. And everything we do is for him. It's about him. It's, it's, it's by him. So it's all about God, right? Another one is to, to walk in kingdom life as the church. We are also to be about the word of God. This is where he speaks to us. This is the only document that is living. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not these words. If we're going to be the church of Jesus Christ, we got to be about the word of God. No, no excuses, right? Period. There you go. Amen. Something else we're to be all about is worship. This is about adoring the Lord, you know? I had a friend who used to say, I'm courting the Lord in worship, and I thought, well, that's not really manly, but then I thought, yeah, but it's really good, though. I mean, this is all about the love of God. It, it, you know, we, we come in here in a number of different ways. We are reminded of His goodness. We, you know, we, 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 we go into the heart of God together. We do this on a Sunday morning, and our lives are also worship. So the church is to be all about worship if it is to be the church. And then finally, there are two other things that we've pointed out quite often and it's the great commission of Jesus Christ. The church has got to get back to the great commission. We have got to be about the great commission. But we also have to do this in the spirit of the greatest command, the love of God and the mission of God. All these are ingredients. We amen every one of, one of them. But what we get here in Acts chapter 5 is that there is an enemy out there, and he seeks to corrupt what God is up to. He seeks to stop the plan of God, and he seeks to stop the people of God. 
There is an enemy out there. And when that happens, you might say, oh, it would never happen in this church. Guys, I love you so much. I wish I could say, yeah, we'll never have a problem like this or anything near it. But again, the church is full of what? People. And we are prone to wander. Things happen in the church. When this happens, we are to step towards people who are in trouble, who are doing some destruction, who are making life miserable, who are getting in the way of of, of what God has called us to be, we're supposed to step toward them with loving truth. You know what that's called? I know Neil does in the EPC. It's church discipline. There's this thing called church discipline, but the idea behind church discipline is actually shown in Acts chapter 5. We try to what? Destroy the offender. No, absolutely not. We try to reclaim the offender. We try to rescue someone who's in trouble. And when we do this, when the church of Jesus Christ does this, okay? So you might say, well, well, let's do everything but that because it's a little uncomfortable. And, you know, I mean, the lack of amens tells you this is a heavy sermon. So we don't need to do this stuff. But listen, when we do this, when the church walks out, church discipline, when it's needed, you know what happens to the church? The effect of the church, the effectiveness of the church is magnified exponentially. Now, y'all thought Acts... Uh, the church in Acts of something, uh, and in uh, chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, listen to what follows right after Ananias and Sapphira. Listen to 12, uh, uh, chapter 5, 12 through 16. The apostles then performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers met together in Solomon's colonnade. More and more people believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets so that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Did y'all catch that? greater unity than they had before, okay? Because remember, they're not gathered inside of a church building. They're out there in Solomon's colonnade now. They're having even greater unity, a genuine fear, and a reverence from the Lord. That, that's, just, that's just spiked after this, this situation. Miracles, salvation, church growth, healing, and deliverance. Do you realize this is everything we preach about? Everything we teach about, we long to taste the fullness of God like this. This is everything we pray about, everything we read books about. Oh, God, we long to experience this. What you get here with this church is this all flows naturally as they walk in the fullness of God. I know that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, and listen, I know, uh, you know, we, we long for greater things, and, but, but here instead of, you know, we are chasing after signs and wonders, these guys walk in the fullness of God, all of it, signs and wonders follow them. That's the way it's supposed to happen here. And it's beautiful to see as they walk with God in, in, in all of these things, right, including loving, truthful confrontation when necessary. Man, the lightning rod, it's like the lightning rod. I don't know whether the lightning storm got bigger or the lightning rod got bigger, but man, there's even more than there was before. What what they had before was amazing. What they have now, it's hard to describe the beauty and the power and the effectiveness of all this. It, it, It is amazing to see God using a faithful church to this extent. And y'all, by the way, this is faithfulness. 
I want you to know that a faithful church will exercise church discipline when it's needed. But when we step into church discipline with people, there's the matter of how do we do it, okay? Now, that's the question. We are to follow God's example, all right? So if any of you step out of line, we're just going to strike you dead. No, that's not, that's not it at all. No, the example we get of God throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that there are three big words that jump out. God is Father, God is our shepherd, and God is our gardener. And that gardener prunes away dead branches. This is the example of how we step toward people. You think of Jesus. Look at Jesus with sinners, Okay. It's, it's pretty good. Think, think of the most notorious sinners you can think. How does Jesus deal with the most notorious sinners? Um, the woman at the well, okay? Now, listen, I know we like the woman, okay? She's pretty cool. She is one heck of a sinner in John chapter 4. At the start of that passage, man, this one, she is, she is bad news, spiritually speaking. Look at how Jesus moves toward her. Such gentleness, instructing her, calling her to life. Look at Zacchaeus. Okay, Zacchaeus is the biggest turncoat trader of all time. Jesus, just throw a rock, knock the guy to the tree. Let's be done with the passage and move on, would you please? Absolutely not. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I need to spend time with you. I mean, look at the woman caught in adultery. Everyone else has the rocks in this passage, okay? Just, I mean, I mean this is just a matter of kinetic energy. Just, just let the elbow and the hand do what it's meant to do. Absolutely not. Jesus won't have it. He does not deal with sinners that way. When I think of how Jesus loved people, who were in trouble. I, I think of passages in the Old Testament like Proverbs 25.8. It says, good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in his ways. Does that describe Jesus or what? Let me tell you how the kingdom works. Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who made you. Let me tell you the life that you're this far away from receiving from me. I think of Proverbs 22.6, right? Every parent knows that one. Train up a child in the way they should go. That is exactly the way Jesus moves toward us when, when, we, uh, when, we, when we stray, when we fall. And the church, this is the attitude we have to have whenever we have to deal with something serious among us. This is the heart we bring. And I know you can easily fire back and go, well, yeah, well, well wait a minute. Um, Steve, all this is great, but I think you're forget forgetting something. I think you're forgetting about Ananias and Sapphira. Why did God kill them then? It kind of goes against everything you said. Let me ask you a question. Did he really? And of course, you can argue yes from one perspective, but all the way through this passage, God is calling them back to life through Peter, isn't he? And they refuse. So if we do a little CSI here this morning, a little spiritual forensics, Whose fingerprints are really on this gun? I think it's Ananias and Sapphira, but God goes all the way uh, to, to, to bring them back. And so today, we, we, we kind of end with this. Okay, we lay on the plane right here. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be what we read about in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. We are meant to be a garden. When you think of the, 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 the Garden of Eden, I want you to think about the first church. We're supposed to be vibrant. Uh, my assistant was making a, she made up a limerick this week and talked about in, you know, in, in a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to, not to survive, but to thrive. That's the church of Jesus Christ. God intends for us to be a garden. God has given us every resource to be living and vibrant. God's desire for the church is that we grow into something that is lovely and something that is lively. He, he, his desire is for us to be a people of peace and a people of power. 
But you got to know this. The enemy aims to stop the people of God and, 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 and God's, uh, God's plan. He intends to do this. And I tell you, if nothing else, that's what Ananias and Sapphira show us, that even the people of God can get sucked into the dark side, right? I mean, even we can do this. Darkness and death can come to the body of Christ through the people of God. And listen, it's not just the people out there. I mean, we've seen this happen through shepherds before, haven't we? I mean, we, we've seen leaders do this kind of thing. So how do we apply this? Well, we can apply it one way. Th- th- here's one, one idea. Uh, one is let's just don't be those people. Let's never enter into those murky waters. As for me and my family, we're here to serve the Lord. Man, we're here to give to the body of Christ. We're here to be a blessing. So when we hear chatter, you know, we don't have time for that kind of stuff. Or if you tell it to us, we're not keeping your secret, all right? we, We can do that, and that's great if we can hold that line. But listen, again, people are prone to wander. We fall into sin. Things like this may come up. They will come up at times in the church. And when things like this enter the church through somebody in the church, leadership, brothers and sisters, we are to go to those people in truth and love. Truth and love, because that's what's happening here. And I'll tell you this, if we do it this way, remembering the heart of God, truth and love, if we do this, we're going to avoid the two miserable extremes of church discipline. You know what they are? You can probably guess. The first one is over here, and it's, oh, something's going on, but uh, I don't see it, you know? Maybe, if, maybe if, if we just ignore this thing, it'll go away. You know, hey, nothing's wrong here. Everything's fine. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But the problem with sin is sin grows. Cancer spreads. When we ignore major matters in the church, it poisons the church. And I think sometimes we look around and we say, man, why is the church so anemic these days? Why does the church t- seem to be a slumbering giant? I think more often than not, it's because we've let things go that, man, if we would just clean, if, if judgment could begin in the house of God and we'd clean up what is unlovely here, man, we could take light and life out there like crazy. But ignoring the problem is one of the extremes and, oh, truth and love, if you're operating in truth and love, you're never going to end up there. The other way is, uh, is when, when we, we come in like a hammer, you know, I mean like a sledgehammer, and we're just like, you know, oh, there's somebody who's sinning. Well, you know what, Mark Sanum, how dare you? You're out of here. Be gone. We seek to destroy instead of to deliver people, to love people to life. Instead, as a church, as a part of the EPC, because this is, this is part of our beautiful heritage, in church discipline, we seek to reclaim and restore people. We want to call people to repentance. We don't want to delight in what went wrong, but rejoice that things turned around. And I tell you, if we, if we will move and act like this as a leadership and as a people, man, you're going to see restoration happen in all kinds of ways. Life come, just celebration over God taking what was ugly and making it beautiful once again. And I'll tell you this, if we do this along with everything else, right? If we do this along with everything else, we ought to expect a little Acts 5, 13 through 16 around here. We ought to expect more of it. Beauty, life, love, and power as a result. Now, before Shiloh comes up here, I want to tell you something funny. When, when I put this sermon together the other day, I thought, man, Lord, this is one, I, can I just read around this one? You know, and, and I thought, you know, this is going to be one of those sermons where you're not going to get a lot of amens, a lot of hand clapping, but I want us to keep all of this in context, that when we worship, 
When we are in the Word of God, when we lean forward into the Spirit, when we walk in all of the ways of God, we see God move. And church discipline is a vital part of a vibrant church. So let's embrace that today. Shiloh, come up here and I'm going to pray for us. Is Shiloh, oh, hey, Shiloh. Let me pray for us for a second, Shiloh. Lord, my biggest concern in preaching this sermon today was that um, folks are going to think, uh-oh, wait, there's going to be some kind of announcement at the end of it. Um, Lord, maybe the, the pastor will point at me and I'll get called out. But Father God, there's none of that today. We thank you. We thank you that this is what came next. And Father, I, I am so thankful for a church that loved you enough to keep itself clean, a church that loved one another enough to call one another to account and to life. And Father, we just welcome, Lord, I, we just welcome, first of all, your Holy Spirit, not only to fill us and bring us into an ecstatic joy and to lead us deeper into truth, but we welcome, God, the correction of your Holy Spirit. Because God, we wanna grow up to be tall trees. Father God, I wanna be a pastor who looks back, I'm 48 today, I look back when I'm 60 and I'm like, oh God, look at how many ways I got corrected how many ways you disciplined me into life. I rejoice over those past 12 years. God, we love you and we thank you that being a part of a family is about helping one another up and helping one another higher. And so God, we, we, we just welcome you. We rejoice in you and we thank you that you are here to love us all the way into life in Jesus' name. As we uh, take a minute just to close, we're gonna close with a song and if you need prayer this morning, we would love to pray with you. We've got people up front who will meet you. We'd love to pray with you about anything. Um, we're also gonna have a word. Uh, someone had a, really felt like the Lord had something for us this morning. So Mark's also gonna have that person share a word with us or you'll recap one way or the other. So uh, Father, we just thank you for this time of ministry and we just pray that just before we go here, Lord, that um, we really receive this word and, and any ministry you have, reach deeply into us, Lord, in Jesus' name.